You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, it was a bad week for tech stocks that just kept getting worse. From big names to small, it was the worst five days for the NASDAQ since January, as investors wonder what the Fed does next. Plus, Grindr, the dating app focused on the LGBTQ plus community, has a new CEO. Our conversation with George Arison as it readies for a public debut. And bad news for Star Wars fans. Disney has pulled the upcoming film Rogue Squadron from its 2023 release calendar. How this will impact theaters globally this hour. I am a hacker. That is the Slack message that Uber employees received from an unknown source late Thursday, prompting the company to shut down its internal Slack messaging as it investigates a massive cyber breach. This, according to the New York Times. My next guest, Casey Ellis, is the founder and CTO of BugCrowd, a bug bounty company that specializes in identifying errors or vulnerabilities in other companies' software systems. He joins us now to break it all down. So it sounds pretty serious, Casey. I know there's a real fire drill happening inside Uber right now. How did this happen? Yeah, so thank you for having me. Um, you know, BugCrowd works with hackers all the time, but this was one of the uh, the bad ones that we try to stop. Um, essentially, what we know at this point is that there was either through text messaging or possibly a, a multi-factor push message notification, basically a spam campaign uh, conducted against people with, with elevated privilege within Uber. Um, that spam camp- campaign was success- successful. And, um, you know, it, because of that success, the, the attacker got access to credentials that um, got them inside the network. Once they're inside, they're able to uh, to move around, you know, find additional information to escalate their privilege and, and do some of the things that caused, you know, some of the weirdness that was on Slack, for example, that, uh, that started to break yesterday. Let's talk about the weirdness. One of my sources says there are unseemly pictures all over their internal networks. Um, Aside from wreaking havoc, what kind of valuable information could they have gotten their hands on? 
Yeah, it's it's speculation at this point because I you know I think Uber uh, as of two hours ago they're they're basically posting precautions. There was there was obviously the notice and the report of them you know telling their internal employees to stop using Slack and so on. Um, so it, it looks from from the outside in that uh, you know nothing's necessarily off the table at this point, and there's still obviously a lot of incident response going down. Like Uber is having a, a very you know busy Friday and quite likely a very busy weekend, just being able to reverse this thing out and, and work out exactly what has happened so they can take the appropriate response steps and, and obviously alert people um, as, as necessary as well. But, you know, as of this point in time, they're, they're saying that, uh, you know, things like uh, private user data has not been accessed uh, and, and, and so on. So it, it's not necessarily um, an assumption that the attack has gone and gotten everything and, and, and used all of that, but obviously they've had a lot more access than they should. And, and when anything like that happens, especially with some of the kind of trolling that seemed to go on off the back of the hack inside the uh, inside the uh, corporate environment of, of Uber, um, there's a lot of work to be done to figure out, you know, what exactly has happened so it can be fixed. Uh, you know, as you say, Uber says they have no evidence that the incident involved access to sensitive Uber data. It doesn't seem like the Uber service, the public Uber ride sharing service has been impacted yet, right? Yeah, it seems that way. Yep. Correct. They, they, they so, um, uh, seem to be focusing on, you know, continuing operations and, and, you know, providing business as usual. But obviously, um, you know, talking to folk on, on the inside and folk around the situation, they are very busily burning the whole thing down and working out exactly what needs to be taken as a, as a response step and as, you know, future precautionary steps as well. All external services operational to this point. Now, there's an interesting bug bounty tie-in here in that the perpetrator also got into their hacker one system which helps the company um, pay bug bounties to people who find vulnerabilities in uber system this is similar to what your company bug crowd does what do you make of this yeah it's it's similar to, to a big part of what we do for sure um, look i think what i what i make of that is that um that's actually how i first learned of, of, of the issue, uh, there was there was basically more spam. So you, you talked about some of the inappropriate pitches, and there was you know apparently banter going on 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 the corporate Slack. Um, you know people interacting with with the attacker and and, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> kind of carrying along that same line, there was messages that got sent out to uh, basically everyone in the researcher community or, or in the white call it the white hat hacker or the you know good guy that thinks like bad guys um, community. Uh, who had submitted an issue into Hacker One in the past, basically saying, this is what's happened, like I'm in here now, just so you know. Um, there didn't really seem to be much of an intent or a purpose to that other than just to make a bunch of noise, but it definitely did. Um, and hmm. you know, at that point in time, you've obviously got a whole bunch of you know computer security experts receiving this message. They jumped straight into like what the heck's happened mode, um, at which point, you know, I noticed it and got involved and Obviously, started taking you know whatever steps might be necessary from from our perspective at, at, at Bug Crowd. It's like okay, if there's weird stuff going on that's impacting the vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty space, and, and we're obviously a large part of that space, we need to make sure that you know there's nothing affecting us as well. Which sure enough, there wasn't, but yeah. you can't be too careful when this sort of thing starts to go down. Well, interestingly, at this very same time, uh, Joe Sullivan, the former chief security officer at Uber, has been on trial for a data breach, a, a huge data breach that happened back in 2016 that the company allegedly didn't notify the public about when they should have. Uber at the time, as I understand it, paid this hacker $100,000 to make the hacker go away, but didn't properly disclose it. Um, what do you make of, of 
the timing and also the history of Uber maybe not having a great track record here. Yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously that case is 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 ongoing at this point. I think it's actually you know it's in session today. It's been in session pretty much all week, um, to, to to my knowledge. And you know I think Joe's side of the story and kind of the internal side of the the story through discovery is is playing out now. Um, you know that whole that whole incident. I mean, it, probably the other thing that got my spidey senses tingling just a little bit. Um, with with the timing of all of this was obviously that that whole thing's going on currently with respect to the uh, to the breach. Um, you've got you know a bunch of other things happening that that are just generally um, you know encouraging I guess activist uh, you know hacktivism um, activity uh, around you know Bay Area tech at the, at the moment. There's there's a string of things that are happening that uh, that are getting people's attention. You know Mudge's testimony. Uh, earlier on in the week with respect to Twitter, you know, the stuff that's gone on with Cloudflare over the past couple of weeks, there's a lot of very heightened mm-hmm. and very passionate subjects kind of all boiling up at the same time. Um, and that was, frankly, the correlation between all of those things and then this happening at Uber was was one of the things that kind of, you know, caused right. me a bit of a sleepless, sleepless night last night trying to figure out what the heck's going on. But, uh, yeah, in terms of, you know, speaking to to how that reflects on uber and how it reflects on all of that it's it's too early to say any of that you know i, I think my my main thought right now is is frankly um you know sympathy and, and kind of my heart going out to the security team that's having to work a very long weekend right. coming up to, to burn this whole thing down so i think just starting there is probably the right place to start uh long hard weekend for sure yeah. ahead of them casey ellis founder and cto of bug crowd thank you for stopping by thank you thank coming you. up Grinder gets a brand new CEO. We're going to speak with George Arison next about his ideas for the popular dating app. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The dating app Grindr just announced a new CEO, George Arison, co-founder and former CEO of the auto e-commerce marketplace, Shift. 
This fulfills a pledge to appoint someone who identifies with the LGBTQ plus community in this top role as the company prepares to go public. George Arison joins us now for more on the big news. So uh, stepping into a big role here, George, but you have some experience with um, obviously a, a car marketplace and uh, on the board. What did you learn behind the scenes that you think you bring to the table here? Look, Grindr is an amazing company. Um, and I've built a company, taken it public, but margins are always a challenge in our in the auto business. With Grindr, margins are amazing. And so that's obviously a very big difference. Uh, Grindr is a really awesome business. But more importantly, it's a really awesome mission. Right? You are serving a community that's been underserved and that uses this product in a really dramatic way to connect. Uh, and that mission to me is super appealing, and I'm really excited to be um, to be a part of it. Uh, and obviously, Grindr has been around for a long time, since 2009. The product actually hasn't really fundamentally changed in that time period. People have um, used it the same way for, for a long time, but the features that it offers have obviously expanded. It's gone from being just about sex to being about dating, and now it's used in a lot of other ways. And my goal as CEO is going to be to try to continue to nurture this really incredible product um, and the community that it serves in the best way we can. Talk to us a little bit more about how Grindr is used globally, because I think there's, you know, one impression it is, you know, quote unquote, just a dating app, but it's actually so much more. Yeah, I mean, in so many, there's so many other things people use it for. Uh, travel's a massive feature set that people use it for. And it's all, by the way, organic. It's not like Grindr's built products to facilitate travel, but people log into a city they might be visiting to, start talking to people about where they should stay, what they should do, where they should um, go out to dinner or go out to have fun. So in a very organic way, people use it for travel. Health um, information is another massive feature in Grindr with the monkeypox epidemic right now. Grindr has been very active in helping our user base understand that there's a problem and where to get vaccines, how to get them. There's even like a feature inside the app to find out where you should go get a vaccine. So people use Grindr in a ton of different ways. One of the interesting things for me on the board the last couple of months, we left one of the very challenging countries um, uh, to be operating in and to be gay in um, recently because we just didn't feel comfortable. And, you know, we heard back so much feedback from users in that country and NGOs in that country pleading with us to come back. So the board was asked to decide, should we go back or not? And I mean, that's like a life or death issue almost in some ways. On the one hand, people want to use the product to connect and it's super valuable. On the flip side, we know that the state right. uses the product to try to find people who are gay. And like, which side do you kind of go on, right? Do you deny people the product that's really important to them or do you allow them to have the product but risk their security? Really tough issue. I won't reveal the country it's in because I don't think that's appropriate, but like that kind of describes how critical Grindr is to so many people and this amazing product that it is for that community. Now you've gone through one SPAC process with Shift, and I know you're trying to get Grindr over the finish over the finish line now, but how are you thinking about that given Pretty dreadful market dynamics out there and a, and a tough environment. Yeah, it's a, I mean, SPAC is great in that kind of situation because it's a guaranteed way to get the transaction done, right? You are not dependent on market conditions. Um, and Grindr's partner for, for the SPAC transaction is a very strong SPAC. There's a forward purchase agreement in the transaction, which ensures that there's no need for any capital to come into the transaction and redemptions are not an issue. But the last and, 
Many, many of the, the most recent SPACs haven't done well. Yeah, most SPACs have not done well, no question. But there are about two dozen SPACs in the last 12 months that are doing very well. And they share one trait. They're all profitable businesses. So Grindr kind of falls into that bucket as well. It's a very profitable business. And no one is selling in this transaction. So all the current owners of Grindr are going to roll over and continue holding the business. Um, so we feel pretty good about the transaction from that perspective. Grindr, I mean, um, SPAC is the mechanism for getting the transaction done uh, so we can become a public company. I think the outcome will be the same whether we had done a regular way IPO or a SPAC transaction. You're one of very few openly gay CEOs, certainly as it comes to public companies. Is there a precedent that you want to set here or a message that you want to send? Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. And uh, I think, look, people should believe that anything's possible, right? Like one of my core values as an operator is that impossible things are possible. And my whole life is almost an example of that, where I was born in the Soviet Union, um, came to the U.S. As a, as a young teenager to go to prep school. Now, this is the second pub company I'm going to take public. Incredible things are achievable as long as you work hard. And, um, you know, it, for those people who are, you know, part of the LGBT community living in countries where they feel like they're being marginalized or they can't be out, things are going to get better because that's the direction that the world is heading into kind of every day. And we're really, really fortunate to be living in a country where we can be ourselves and not be under threat all the time. And how are you thinking about monetization and boosting the opportunities that Grindr has already explored? Subscriptions and ads are, of course, the money makers. Yeah, we make money in two ways. We have ads in the product and we have subscriptions. Um, our percentage of users that are paying users is actually not that high. Uh, it's about 6% versus, you know, Bumble's at, uh, I think, 9% and, and matches at 18 um, So we have a huge opportunity to grow the paid user base. One of the ways we're going to do that is by building more adjacent features that people then want to pay for. Grind has been behind in that regard. It's only recently started to monetize its functionality and add new functionality. So, for example, we just recently launched Boost, which has been a very popular feature. Doing more things like that, I think, will be really important. And then with ads, obviously, there's a huge opportunity to have more relevant ads. When we have ads that are relevant to our community, they are actually very effective and they service the community really well. For example, with, with health-related ads. And so my focus will be to ensure that the ad quality is really good and it really enables the community to use the product in a, in a good way if they don't want to pay for it. All right, George Arison, incoming CEO of Grindr, thanks so much for stopping by. We'll keep watching. Well, thank you for having me. All right, coming up, FedEx's guidance brings doom and gloom to the markets and especially e-commerce stocks. We're going to tell you more about that next. This is Bloomberg. One story you don't want to miss in Bloomberg's Big Take this Thursday about how a Chinese spy tried to steal GE secrets but got caught by the U.S. and gave the world an unprecedented glimpse into China's spy system. Here's how the arrest of a burned-out intelligence officer exposed an economic espionage machine. When a Chinese spy was extradited to the U.S., the FBI got its hands on a remarkable resource, his iPhone. It shed valuable light on how Asia's largest economy steals top-secret technology. 
Xu Yanjun was an agent of China's Ministry of State Security when he was arrested in Brussels in 2018. How could the FBI prove it? Well, on his iPhone was an official form that listed his job as Deputy Division Director at the MSS. It might as well have said profession, spy. Xu's main job was stealing defense and aviation innovations from firms such as General Electric. In 2014, for instance, a colleague distracted a British engineer over a banquet in Nanjing while Xu was upstairs in his hotel room copying the contents of his laptop. Xu said he needs three hours. Speed it up, came the response. Between messages to seemingly extramarital lovers, Xu asked specialists from China's top aviation companies what sort of intel they needed, then set about cultivating the sources who could provide it. One such source was a GE engineer who would ultimately precipitate his downfall. After being rumbled by the FBI, the engineer turned double agent and offered to meet Xu at a cafe in Brussels. It was, of course, a setup. En route to that fateful meeting, Xu messaged his wife that there was a USB stick hidden at home for which she'd be given the password for something to happen to him. She responded, oh my god, don't scare me like this. The next day, he was arrested. He now resides in an Ohio jail, facing up to 60 years in prison. Quick takes Alex Webb for that, and of course you can check out The Big Take Thursday. Here are some other stories we're following. Shopify is now changing its compensation practices to let staff decide how much of their pay comes in cash versus equity with the ability to withdraw equity immediately. This is volatility continues to beat down shares of tech companies. The Canadian e-commerce firm saw its own share price fall 75% this year. And Google Cloud making some changes with plans to unfreeze hiring by October, reversing a pause that was set Back in July, this according to Business Insider, which cited an internal memo from Google Cloud's Vice President of Technical Infrastructure, Brad Calder, saying the unit must clarify its priorities for 2023. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. The new iPhone 14 is out. The latest generation of Apple's handset in stores now and the high-end Pro coming in at $1,000 base price. Apple isn't raising prices from last year to this year, perhaps to counter the pain of rising inflation, but still, will customers pay up? Our Ed Ludlow back in New York with the deets. Will they, Ed? That is a question. Yeah, I mean, this is a global rollout of the iPhone 14, next generation of Apple Watches. But here in New York City, Apple CEO Tim Cook, he's been in town. He's been on the Upper West Side. He's been on the East Side. He's been on Fifth Avenue meeting customers. And there seemed to be excitement. There seems to be demand. But the question the street's asking, will it fuel a global wave of upgrades? Will it fuel a boost to Apple sales? Let's bring up this pie chart. Mr. Director, because we need to contextualize how important the iPhone is in the context of overall sales. It's more than 50%, right? Now, Apple has reserved the most important new features, the biggest upgrades for that most expensive handset. And you and I have been talking all week about the data for early orders or pre-orders, which shows that actually there is demand for that most expensive handset. The other story we've been talking about is the evidence that actually demand for consumer electronics is really slowing down. Now, let's look at the numbers for iPhone sales over the last few years. I'm just, I'm going to walk all the way over here and go straight to 2021. That was an incredible year for Apple, right? Record iPhone sales. The thing is, the early data 
also shows that the demand for the highest price point handset with the nicest, the fanciest, the most high spec features is actually outdoing what we saw in 2021 as well. So there's debate about this. There's actually a guy who works at Bloomberg Intelligence here in New York. I think you might be about to speak to him. He might not see it the way that some of the street sees it in terms of this big wave of upgrades that's coming, but some of the street does. All right, Ad Ludlow, thank you. I want to continue this conversation with Carolina Milanese of Creative Strategies and our very own Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst, Anurag Rana, who covers Apple for us. Um, Carolina, I'll start with you since we spoke to you last week from the Apple event. We got your sort of preview take there. Now that you've seen some of this pre-order data, how good does it look? It doesn't surprise me that we see a skew of sales towards the higher end of the portfolio. That's always the case with pre-orders. Usually the, the customers that pre-order are early tech, early adopters, higher income level. Uh, so you always see that. And I always uh, warn people not to judge the kind of a long tail of the rest of a portfolio just by pre-orders. I think what Apple has done, though, this year with the Pro line is appealing to a broader audience than just the camera lovers. So I think that Dynamic Island really is a refreshing the look and feel of that higher end uh, family to, uh, to appeal to a broader consumer audience. Anurag, I know Apple didn't raise the prices, but we're in a downturn. Everybody's hurting. We're paying more for gas and groceries and everything else. Are we going to upgrade our devices right now? So, you know, our, our, our take is that um, Apple runs on about a 3.6 or 3.7 year refresh cycle. So if you take the big install base they have, they're going to sell more than 200 million units every year. It doesn't matter what year it is. But for us, Apple's iPhone 14 does not move the needle. We think it's going to be the next year's model with bigger hardware changes. But I do agree that the Pro model is good. It has a better camera. There will be some people who will move it. And, and remember, people who can afford to buy $1,000 phones, you know, they, the gas prices and things don't really bother them as much. So, uh, Carolina, what else are you watching here? I mean, FedEx just cut its own guidance, bringing Amazon down with it. And there are broader warnings here about what's happening in the global economy. I think from an Apple perspective, it would be interesting if the skew to the Pro and also the 14 plus models is going to impact their uh, average selling price. So we might see a, a higher selling price compared to last year uh, before we see a difference in volume. And then the other part is as the early adopters kind of die off as the cycle continues to see how the previous models are going to impact the overall sales. And then beyond iPhone, of course, we're all looking at uh, Apple Watch, both at the very low end with DSC for more people entering the ecosystem, and then the very high end with the Ultra model at $800 uh, price point. Anurag, what do you read into this FedEx data? They yeah. specifically called out Asia and Europe, and of course, Apple is a global company. Yeah, and this is part of the note that we wrote a month ago. I said, listen, for Apple, 43% of the sales come from Europe and China combined. And those are the regions that are really struggling. In fact, I would say Europe is going to have bigger issues going in the, in the near term with, uh, with fuel prices and uh, energy prices going up. So, which is one of the reasons we said that year over year, we don't see iPhone sales growing more than 1% to 2%. Now, for a lot of people, that may be a bad thing. But in all honesty, it's not bad 
that at all in a downward market you know you're not going to see negative uh, sales compared to last year so all in all i think it's a, it's a good cycle i mean but not as strong as next year next year we think it's going to be a much much bigger refresh for uh, the iphone now as far as the uh, watch is concerned it's mm. a beautiful watch the 800 dollar watch is amazing but frankly speaking those things really don't move the financial needle for apple carolina does that jive with your projections it, it does i think that next year for sure the uh, upgrade cycle will be higher not just because of the hardware but there's there's going to be a, a step forward in the processing power as well so i think that that uh, especially for the markets that seem to be struggling more this year from a financial perspective china in particular that pays a lot of attention to the inside of the device not just the look and feel of the outside that will matter a lot um and and i tend to agree that generally you know while the sales of the other products don't make a huge difference to the bottom line from a from a revenue perspective it does tie in more of the customers which longer term is what apple will benefit from a more loyal more unified user base all right obviously so much to continue to follow when it comes to apple anurag i do want to ask you about another story we've been following you've got a new note out on this, Adobe buying Figma for $20 billion. Of course, Figma was a you know pretty big competitive threat to Adobe. I wonder if this is kind of an admission of defeat a bit. Either way, that is a huge, huge number. Is this a smart deal? So one of the things we said, you know, technology-wise, it may be a smart deal, but I think this is the wrong time to do it. We know software valuations have cratered since last November, and for a company that was valued at $10 billion last summer to buy them for $20 billion, I mean, nobody's liking it. They, I think they've lost about $35 billion in market cap uh, right now for a company that's going to generate about $400 million in revenue for next year. So I think they really need to think hard and, and long that investors have clearly made a point that they are looking for margin expansion, you know, profit growth, even if it growth slows down a little bit so much. And frankly, you know, in our view, Adobe is such a widely diversified company with an install base very large of, you know, creative products. And if in one area the product is getting competition, it's not a big deal to me, frankly. All right, Anurag Rana, Bloomberg Intelligence, along with Carolina Milanese, uh, Principal Analyst at Creative Strategies. Thank you both. Um, all, all stuff we're going to continue to follow. While it is potentially a worrying sign for the global economy, FedEx has withdrawn its earnings forecast due to worsening business conditions, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, the package delivery giant pointing to weakness in Asia and challenges in Europe. FedEx taking immediate steps to cut costs, including parking some aircraft, cutting workers' hours, and closing more than 90 FedEx office locations. Coming up, as we enter a post-Ethereum merge world, what happens next, and what's a long-term view? We'll talk about that. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice 
or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. With the merge now complete, let's take a look at how significant this successful update was for the community and what comes next. Joe Lau, co-founder of Alchemy, a Web3 development platform to build and scale decentralized apps, is with us now. Joe, thank you for joining us. So, seems like everything went according to plan. What are your key takeaways, aside from some pretty funny panda memes? <laughs> Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me today. And yeah, the merge happened a couple nights ago. Uh, happened at midnight. Our entire team stayed up to watch it, as did a lot of the Ethereum community. I think the biggest takeaway was this was a monumental effort. It's part of a years-long roadmap, um, many years-long, multi-year-long roadmap by hundreds of uh, hundreds of stakeholders, and there's not one single um, centralized decision-maker or anything like that. So the fact that it all came together as it did uh, super smoothly is incredible. I think I would liken the merge to, uh, to swapping out the engine of a plane that's already in the air. So you have the Ethereum blockchain, it's a multi-hundred billion dollar ecosystem. Um, and the fact that they're able to keep it live, keep it working, and swap out essentially one piece of the core and have uh, have no hiccups is incredible. What does this actually mean for Alchemy's ecosystem? That's a great question. So Alchemy, for those that don't know, um, is a blockchain developer platform. What that means, you can think of us as the Amazon Web Services for blockchain and Web3. What it means is we help developers and companies build applications much better by providing them a developer platform to build on top of. So we started the company about five years ago. We, uh, five years ago, we've grown extremely rapidly in just the last few years. Today, we power about $150 billion in transaction volume. Um, a big chunk of the top Ethereum, um, the top uh, companies in blockchain and Ethereum and blockchain in general. Uh, and we also work with a lot of the biggest companies uh, that are moving into the blockchain and Web3 space today, like Meta, Adobe, Shopify, and Stripe. What the merge means for Alchemy, so we're a developer platform. Our goal is to make sure developers always have access to the infrastructure that they need to build the applications that they need. The merge basically upgraded Ethereum, uh, upgraded Ethereum to... Um, to basically allow to allow the Ethereum to allow the network to run on uh, proof of stake instead of proof of work. For us, it means making sure our services are 100% always up so that developers can have access to them. And that's exactly what we did. So of course, 
We've been talking about the merge for years and now it's finally happened. What is the uh, crypto and blockchain community buzzing about now? What's next? So the merge is just the first step. And again, a multi-years long roadmap. Uh, this first piece was about moving from proof of work, which uses energy, uh, to proof of stake, which allows uh, which allows users to stake their tokens on the network, the value itself on the network. So that's a something like a 99 to 99.95% reduction uh, in energy usage for the blockchain, uh, for the Ethereum blockchain, which is incredible. Um, what's next is going to be a lot of investments into scaling. So uh, there's been a lot of excitement. So Ethereum as a network is um it's just is you know just getting started it's going to get a lot faster it's going to get a lot cheaper and that's where a lot of the focus is going forward the merge was the first step to unlocking the ability to perform some of these other technical upgrades in the future that make ethereum faster and cheaper and so those are going to be the areas of focus next. Well, and it needs to get faster and cheaper in order for, you know, apps, uh, killer apps, if you will, to have that killer impact. But I still hear people say the killer app for crypto hasn't been made yet. What do you think that is? That's a that's a really great question, Emily. Um, and that's something that everyone in the space is always working towards. I think the thing that's really interesting is all technologies start out slow inefficient and expensive. If you look at the internet, back in the 90s when we were using dial-up, you couldn't even load a picture. The picture would like load over a couple of minutes, right, in pieces on a screen. But you fast forward to today, and not only do we have pictures, we have video, we have YouTube, we have TikTok. Something like this, you and me talking on a live stream would be unimaginable if you zoom back to 1995. And so I would look at Ethereum and more widely the Web3 blockchain ecosystem with the same lens. It's just an early space. It's getting started. But what's going to happen is you have upgrades like the merge, which make the technology better. You have more developers build more applications. That in turn drives more investment into making the technology even better and so on and so forth. And you get better and better and better applications. And eventually a killer application emerges. We're already seeing a lot of excitement around not just cryptocurrencies, stores of value, but also gaming and creator monetization and things like that. And I think that's just the beginning. Alchemy has its own VC arm and grants program, and I'm curious what kind of projects you're backing right now, how the macro environment, a dreadful market situation is impacting your decision, uh, decisions and whether valuations, are they coming down? That's a great question. So I think there are valuations in the market, and that obviously has changed over the last six months. The really exciting thing about our ecosystem is developers have not stopped building. And the thing that's important is something like the blockchain Ethereum ecosystem is as long as developers are building, new applications will come out. That'll bring in more users. It'll bring in more developers the, uh, and the ecosystem and the technology gets better. So uh, our ventures arm has seen actually a tremendous amount of growth. It's, we've, I think we're seeing 300% quarter over quarter growth in terms of deal velocity. We're seeing more and more people coming from traditional technology and other other uh, other industries into the space to work on brand new things. Um, and it's been very, very exciting. We're also, we also have educational properties that are aimed at bringing people into the space and teaching them how to develop in Web3 for free. And we're seeing lots of growth there. So all across the board, I think it's been a very, very positive outlook. Um, uh, we're actually out of time, Joe, but I so appreciate your very thoughtful insights there. We'll, we'll have to do this again um, as the market continues to evolve. Alchemy co-founder Joe Lau, thank you so much for stopping by.
Disney has pulled the upcoming Star Wars film Rogue Squadron from its 2023 release calendar, a disappointment for theaters still trying to recover from the pandemic. Joining us now, Bloomberg's Chris Palmieri. So, Chris, sounds like they're still going to make the film, but it's not coming out next year, right? That's right. And this is a reflection of a lot of things going on in the movie business. One of them is, of course, the pandemic. It's hard to uh, get things up and running again. And and you've got a director in in this movie, Patty Jenkins, who's... uh, done uh, the Wonder Woman films. She's working on a third one of those. That's also not started production yet. So scheduling uh, something of this magnitude is difficult. Of course, this is Star Wars and you want to get it right. Uh, You broke the news three years ago in an interview with then-CEO Bob Iger that, uh, you know, there was some disappointment when when they rushed out a lot of Star Wars films initially and they they put the films on a hiatus. Uh, The last one was in 2019. And so there's a lot of pressure to make sure that they get this right. But I'm, I'm told that this film is still in development, as are some other Star Wars films. All right. Um, not good for theaters, though. I mean, were they really counting on this one? Yeah. I mean, you can even a bad Star Wars film is, is, a, is a lot of money, a billion dollar box office. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a story we keep hearing. Theaters are coming back. Theaters are coming back. Reality is the industry is probably going to do eight and a half billion dollars this year. The peak a few years ago was over eleven billion. So it, it's it's still it's still far from where it was. You know, you had some big movies this year. Top Gun obviously was huge, uh, but they're really counting on these big tent poles, as they're as they're called, to to drive people to theaters. Star Wars is certainly one of them. Well, it's in keeping with the story that you just wrote called uh, The Bad News in Hollywood is Arriving Almost Daily. At least that's the opening line. So what other bad news are we hearing? Well, you know, there's just been this whole rethinking of the streaming business. Uh, for years, everyone was following this sort of Netflix model. of It's all about signing up subscribers, spending a ton of money on movies and TV shows, and, uh, you know, the business will, uh, the revenue and profits will follow. Uh, that all got reset uh, this year. Netflix, uh, you know, as we've reported, has lost subscribers. And so all of the stocks in the entertainment business have collapsed. Uh, and everyone's now focused on when are we going to make money off of our street business? Many of them are losing billions of dollars. And so we've seen, you know, particularly in Netflix and Warner Brothers, which just did its big merger with Discovery, big cutbacks in, in staffing, they're uh, canceling projects. Everyone's dialing back, uh, you know, the budgets for TV series uh, and things are just sort of languishing as everyone sort of waits to see how this all plays out on Wall Street. Um, Well, on that uplifting note, uh, what are you watching this weekend? (laughs) Well, well, to pivot back to Star Wars, even though the (laughs) film and hiatus, you know, their fourth one of the TV series is coming out next week and or. Uh, right. And right. so far, it looks pretty good. And uh, gosh, I am really loving the new Game of Thrones, House of Dragons. It's terrific. Okay. I'm liking House of Dragons, too. I'm excited for Sunday. Chris Palmieri, always good to have you. Um, and happy Friday, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.